You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Uh, well, good morning. My name is Ke- Oh, Thank you all so much. Uh, my name is Kevin Carley. I'm the youth director here. Uh, and while uh, Pastor Brent, our lead pastor, is in Dubai for his uh, master's school for the next couple of weeks, I'm excited to be here, able to teach this morning. Uh, we are continuing this series on the Apostles' Creed where... Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been breaking down line by line, you know, what, what do these lines mean? And what truths are we affirming by proclaiming uh, these lines? And so normally at the end of the message, we'll stand up and recite uh, the, the Apostles' Creed together. But I actually want to begin that way. So if we could stand up, we'll have the Apostles' Creed on the screen and we can recite it together. Y'all ready? Let's do it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. So as we've been journeying through this creed, again, we've been diving deeper into each line and and really unpacking the the crucial doctrines of the Christian faith, where what I want us to to really consider and, and pay attention to right now is that the, the creed up to this point has spoken to, to God and our vertical relationship with him. It began by, by uh, affirming our belief in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Because it, it, it starts with God, it doesn't start with us because that's how we should view our Christian faith. Our walk with Jesus, our relationship to the church, our view of our walk of faith altogether, it begins with God the Father and the gospel that he has given us. It's not us that we should be focusing on, but it's all for his glory. In fact, where we're going today is looking at the church, which uh, follows the Trinity. It starts off with, I believe, the Holy Spirit, and then continues into, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And so as we're looking at the church, we'll realize that, yes, our faith begins with and is based on and is possible only because of who God is. But our identity as individuals is held in the church that Christ established, which was God's plan from before time. That's why the creed progresses the way that it does. As humans, we crawl before we walk. We walk before we run. And so we we understand that this natural progression, it flows because of the foundation that must be built. Our, Our bodies can't handle certain functioning without a proper foundation being established first. So similarly, if we don't understand who God is, we don't understand his church that he's established. And if we don't understand the church that he has established and called us to be a a part of, then we won't understand our roles as individual members within the body. God desires for our lives as followers of Jesus to be in right relationship with himself first. And you hear us refer to that as a vertical relationship, but our horizontal relationship as followers of Jesus with his people, with his bride, and with his church 
is supposed to be that that flows from the love of Christ as well. And so the Holy Catholic Church is the universal church. Some of us, as we've been reciting this creed, we're like, oh, wait a second, Catholic? Are we Catholic? No, that's not what we're saying. The Catholic here, uh, lowercase c, means universal. Yes, there's the Roman Catholic Church with a capital C, but that's not what we mean here. Some other versions of the creed actually refer to it as the Holy Christian Church, uh, just to further distinguish from the Roman Catholic Church and the universal church. But if you want a clear image of what the Holy Catholic Church looks like, we need to turn to Revelations chapter 7. In verses 9 through 10, it reads, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the vision that John saw of what was to come in heaven. He, he had a, a, a heavenly insight, a, a, pro, a prophetic vision of what was to come. He noted that there was differences among the people there, but that they were all there worshiping the one true God. So despite difference in nation, ethnic background, tribal community, culture, language, and tongue, they were all singing praise to the same name of Jesus, worshiping the sovereign God who sits on the throne as the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church from east to west, north and south, different regions of the world, they're still coming together and worshiping God. So the vast multitude from every nation should also put us in the mindset of, of uh, Father Abraham, where even saying Father Abraham, you're singing a song in your mind. You've got a little jingle going. But in, in the book of Genesis, we see kind of the beginning, and here in Revelation, the culmination of what started there in the beginning as God is fulfilling his promise. He told Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to have children. I know you're old and you don't have them right now, but understand, I'm going to give you descendants through whom I will bless the nations. Here in Revelation, we see the nations having been blessed. You now are part of the family of God. They who were far are now brought near in right relationship with God, but also in right relationship with one another. Where now it's not just the Jews, the, the nation of Israel, it's not just them who are blessed to have right relationship with God, but now he's included the Gentiles as well, the non-Jews. So to, to make this point clearer, we got to look at the book of Ephesians where, first of all, the, the city of Ephesus was a, a, a Roman province of Asia. So it's not the city of Jerusalem where the people of God typically would have been, uh, but also were exiled from. But now we see Jewish and Greek Christians, Jewish and non-Jewish Christians in the city of Ephesus. And Paul's writing to them to explain, hey, listen. The family of God, the, the Holy Catholic Church, it includes not just, or, or the people of God is, not, is no longer only the Israelites, but now it's anyone who proclaims the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, which therefore can include people who are not of Abraham's bloodline, people who are not traditional Jews. So he writes in chapter 2, verses 11 through 20, it's kind of lengthy, but we'll read it. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. So the Gentiles were uncircumcised. If you, if you might know that uh, in the book of Genesis, God has his covenant with Abraham and said, hey, circumcise the men and they will be part of this covenant too. 
And so he's saying, you know, Gentiles, because you were not in the bloodline of Abraham, you were not circumcised. And you are called the uncircumcised by those Jews who were circumcised, which was done in the flesh by human hands, it continues. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, Jesus made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace." He did this so that he might reconcile both groups, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, the Holy Catholic Church, through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and, rem- and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. It's important for us to understand what Paul is explicitly communicating here. He's saying Jew and Gentile, you you were divided. You had nothing in common. You hated each other. But this gospel makes enemies of God, children of God, and it makes people who once hated each other now love one another because God has made them one. It's one church. It's no longer the the Jewish church and the Gentile church. Now it's one church at large, and we are called to fellowship together, to worship God together, to bring glory to God by the way that we love one another. Everyone has God as their creator, but not everyone has God as their father. I remember being in elementary school when I was in third grade or so, uh, I kind of had this revelation like, wait a second, even people who don't look like me and don't share the same last name are technically family because we're all created by God. And and I really would look around. My dad had, my parents only had sons and so I was like, man, I've, I've got sisters now because We're all created by God, and I thought it was a big revelation, but I I lumped them all in together. God's creation was God's children, but that's contrary to what we see in Scripture because the adopted sons and daughters of God, those who are in God's family, are those who proclaim the name of Jesus. So yes, every human being is created in the image of God and shares God as their creator, but only those who proclaim the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior are those in his family. But to those individuals... He says, you are one family. You keep your cultural identities, and those might be te- you might be tempted to let those divide you and, and, and cause division and distinctions from one another, but actually I view you as one people. So Paul is writing, saying, Gentiles, apart from Christ, you did not have God as your father. He was your creator, but he wasn't your father. God created you, but your sinful idolatry made you far from God and you had no relationship with him. And therefore, you also were distinguished from the Jews and y'all hated each other. But in Christ, you now are made one people. You're made one family. But how many of you know that family gets messy at times? Sometimes, some of you might even be here this morning saying, yep, me and my wife, we were arguing before we came here to church and we haven't talked since we got here and it's a little weird and a little awkward, but that's just the truth in family sometimes. We argue 
And we know that even though the characteristics of a, of a good relationship and a good uh, happy family is that we love one another and communicate, it doesn't stop us from giving the silent treatment once in a while. We all know it. You can say amen silently, I know. But we, we do it, and truly it's just emotional unhealthiness taking part. But at the end of the day, we are failing to be the family that we truly are by blood. So how much more will we fall short at acting as a family within God's church? And so Paul knew that. So he took the time to, and, and the effort to write and explain that Christ's work, it, it, it should make a, 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 an effect for us in our vertical relationship with God, but also our horizontal relationship. And he continues to explain, hey, this unity that you have with God should impact your unity with one another, and here's how. So he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 of Ephesians, he says, Therefore I... The prisoner in the Lord urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. I'm going to say that line again. Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He's saying, I know it'll be easy for you to forsake unity. But I want you to make every effort. I want you to have some intentionality to pursue that unity. And he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul's saying, you've been united to be one people. One people worshiping God together. He's saying resist the temptation to be anything less. Resist the temptation because in Christ you're called to go against the norm. You are one family. You're one church. Yes, there are local churches within a community. Even in Ephesus, there were multiple churches. It wasn't just one church group because it was a large city. But he's saying even though there's local churches, each one should be an individual reflection and expression of the greater united whole bride of Christ the Holy Catholic Church. We know that there may be many things that could cause us to unite, like sports, like music, like food, but there's many things that can cause us to divide as well. In fact, those very same things can cause division. And Scripture is full of, of writings from the apostles saying, hey, don't let it divide you. Don't let it divide you. And so, as an example, Josiah and I, we share a love for food and music and for sports and particularly basketball. But we divide over the great debate of who is the second greatest player of all time next to Michael Jordan. I wholeheartedly believe that is Kobe Bryant. Can I get an amen? There we go. I don't know who that is, wherever you are, but amen, sister. But Josiah would say, no, it's LeBron James. You guys can be quiet there. No, 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 no. Thomas, don't do that. Uh, he would say it's LeBron James. And so we get into some debates about it. We truly do. And sometimes our volume would turn up from like a four to like a nine because we're like, nah, man, you can't look at it that way. You got to consider these statistics or these championships. Six rings. Uh, but, or five, my bad. That's Michael. Anyway, but at the end of the day, we don't allow it to, to cause us division where we actually share an office. But we're not going to sit here and debate about Michael Jordan or LeBron James and Kobe Bryant to a point where we say, nah, I ain't sharing an office with you no more. Now, I ain't on your team no more. Because we realize that's trivial compared to what unites us. We're united in Christ. And yet we work together here at the church. But, but we, what unites us primarily and even brought us to this church is our shared faith in Jesus. And that might sound trivial, 
But truly anything should sound trivial when we consider the glory and sovereignty of Jesus. Political parties shouldn't divide us. Cultural backgrounds shouldn't divide us. But the fact that we allow them to, it doesn't diminish the glory and sovereignty of Jesus. It just means that we fail to obey scripture like we truly should. See, our unity in Christ is greater than anything else that can unite us, but it's also greater than anything that can divide us. But our calling, our affirmation of the communion of saints means that we should be pursuing that unity regardless. We should be uh, acknowledging and and aware of what could divide us, what could cause frustration and, and, and friction, but we should yield and surrender to Jesus and the Holy Spirit to pursue that unity. So we see an example of this calling in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. It says, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. When we neglect to gather together, we hinder our ability to provoke love and good works to one another and of one another. What he's kind of saying is he's speaking kind of even of our modern idiom of out of sight, out of mind. He's saying, you know what? As followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters, when you don't see your brothers and sisters, you're less likely to think of them. And when you're less likely to think of your brothers and sisters, you're less likely to love them and show good works towards them and challenge them towards good works towards yourself. Out of sight, out of mind. So therefore, you should gather together. It's all tied in. But we have to notice even here that he doesn't stop at just gather together. It's not just attendance. He's saying gather together, but with that gathering, you should consider one another in order to provoke love and good works of one another and to one another. Matt Chandler would say it this way. It's God's good design that we would belong to a local church, not that we would go to one. He's saying there's a difference. You can go, you can gather, you can attend, you can come in, you can slide in and slide right back out. You can wait for the final song when the lights dim and then sneak out so you can worship from the parking lot. You can do that and say that you attended, but you're not belonging. You're not belonging. I go to Diablos a lot, but I don't belong to Diablos. But if you look at my bank statement, you might say, "Ah, maybe you do because you go there a lot. But we also go to the Department of Driver Services. We go to grocery stores. We go uh, out to many other places and locations, but it doesn't mean we belong there. But when we say, when we're talking about belonging, it should be a devotion to where the way that we live our lives, how we manage our finances, how we steward our time, how we plan our weekly schedules, our vacations even, should be in mindfulness of the church. I'll never forget a couple years ago when I, I heard of a family who attends here who changed their vacation plans. They had a vacation plan and they said, they learned that we were having a, I can't even remember the event, honestly. I don't know if it was baptisms or VBS or or what, but there's an event planned and they changed their vacation plans because they said, I wanna be here and be part of that. I wanna be a part of what God is doing in this particular week And therefore, if I'm out enjoying my own personal family vacation, I'll miss out. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to change their vacation plans, but what I'm saying is we should be in awe of that type of devotion to the church. It wasn't an obligation where they're like, oh man, they're telling me I gotta be here. They did it joyfully. Joyfully, because they said, I wanna be in the midst of my people. Here's a litmus test 
for us to consider that will give us an inkling as to whether or not we attend and go to church or do we belong to the church? And, and it's one question, but I'll break it down into a few different categories for us to consider and, and understand, too, that we might say, yes, thumbs up, we're, we're doing good, we're being faithful in some of these areas. But then we might say, if I'm honest, I'm not being faithful here. So the question is, do I view my relationship with the church as something I have to do or as something I get to do? So when it comes to time, do I have to go to church or else I'm afraid that people will look at me differently when we, they notice that I'm missing? Or do I get to go to church so I prioritize it because I want to be with God's people? When I'm thinking about my week and I get invited to different places or I'm making my, week, my work schedule, do I say, sorry, Wednesdays are blocked and Sundays are blocked? Not religiously, like I'm going to be in trouble with God and be smited if I do it, but because I'm saying I want to be there. I have a people that I belong to. I have people that I care for who, who I want to check up on them and be in their presence. That's why I have my connect group. But then I also, I have to be encouraged by others who are speaking into my life. Finances. Do I give regularly, cheerfully, and generously? Or do I give with frustration irregularly? Or do I choose not to give at all? Do I belong to a church in a way that says, God, use for your glory what you've given me. So here, I'm giving it back to you. Or do I say, nah, this is mine, and uh, that church will be all right. They got a lot of people. Relationships. Do I have deep relationships where I am known by God's people, allowing myself to be known, prayed for, spoken into, and corrected? Or do I keep a safe distance where no one knows when I'm struggling or when I'm in need? It's so easy, again, for us to sneak in and out, for us to go weeks on end without anyone knowing that we're estranged from our adult children or that we're, we're struggling in our marriage and we're, we're, we're considering divorce or that we've lost our jobs and that we're in great need or, or that we're struggling with, with uh, pornography or, or, or suicide even. No one knows because I hide myself. And I keep a safe distance where I'll talk about, you know, the, the, the basketball game and I'll, I'll talk about, man, that was a great song that we just sang, but if you try to go deeper, I'm out of here. Acts 2, chapter 42 through 47 shows us an image of the early church that serves truly as a model for what we should be trying to be and what we are trying to be here at InFocus Church, but what each believer, each follower of Jesus must subscribe and submit to. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Wow. This image of the early church isn't just a, a, a cultural context that we look at and say, man, that was a thousand, thousands of years ago. And here in America, man, everyone takes care of themselves, so, so we can't be like that. 
But if we look at this, again, as a model for the church, for the body of Christ, the bride of Christ to pursue, we realize that, yes, we are, we are holy, but holy means set apart and set apart for a purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory to our God and to be a light into the dark world where we look different from the cultural norms that are around us. And we go against the grain, not just for the sake of being different, but we're doing it because we're saying, no, we're, we're different. We're, we're a different people. We're a holy priesthood, a holy nation that are, we, we subscribe to the kingdom of God and his government, even if it goes against what our government say. So what would make a group of people here in these scriptures sell their possessions and property and distribute their proceeds to others who are in need? Doesn't that sound like socialism? They should know that don't work, right? And don't try to label me a socialist or say that this church is promoting socialism. And I say that because it will happen and has happened. But in fact, if you're looking at this or listening and saying, man, they're promoting socialism, then you're missing the point. And you're reading scripture through the wrong lens. Because again, if the church is called to fall under the kingdom of God and his commands and his instruction, that means it doesn't matter what type of ist or ism suffix you try to add on because we're being obedient to our Father, even if it fails to follow the way of our culture or our government or our governing authority or anyone else. We're being obedient to our Heavenly Father. The church radiates the light of Christ when we say, I don't care if you label me a Marxist or a socialist or whatever is or ism you try to add on because I want to love my neighbor well as Christ called me to. It doesn't matter. It's why I'm so excited for our students and in focus youth who leverage their opportunities on sports teams or whatever other talents they might have where they're saying, hey, I, I want to share the gospel with my team. I want to have Bible studies with my teammates or, or I, I want to utilize my house. My family ha- has given us the okay where we invite people over for pool parties or to use our land and we have youth events there because we are trying to give a place for uh, the believers to gather together and commune and fellowship, but we're also inviting lost people so that they can recognize, wait a second, y'all are, you said it was going to be a pool party, but man, I thought there'd be alcohol. And I, I, I thought that this would look a whole lot different, but you're trying to tell me y'all have good, clean fun in the name of Jesus? Man, I've heard that before, and that sounds kind of whack, but y'all actually look different. It happens. It happens. And for us adults, too, I've seen entrepreneurs who have reached great success in many ways, and they might give to the, to the church and to other charities and organizations. But I'm, I'm, I love when, when entrepreneurs are considering saying, hey, maybe I'll take my business to downtown Augusta. Maybe I'll open up a restaurant or, or a grocery store in the food desert down there. Maybe I'll provide some jobs in that local area, set up my office there so that even though people here might look at me and say, wait a second, you're going to be in the negative for years, dude. What are you doing? You're going to lose profit. I'll be able to say, it's not about me. It's about the glory of God. And it's about my effort to pursue a lost people and even to pursue fellowship and unity with those saints in Christ because we get to fellowship together and we get to serve in a way that brings glory to God even as the onlookers start to question us. It's important that we understand that the church doesn't always get it right though. Again, family's messy. If I ask you to raise your hand in the church or if the church has ever fell short of your expectations, probably all of us would raise our hands. And it is true that sometimes our expectations are too high, too close to perfection. It's also true that sometimes we expect the church to do things that the church is not called to do. 
But that doesn't take away from the truth that the church is comprised of imperfect people who fail us. They fall short. We fall short. It's not they. It's we. Which is why it's so important to understand that as followers of Jesus, as the holy Catholic church, we bring glory to God not only when we get things right, but also in the way we respond to the realization of our wrongdoings. It means we, we ask for forgiveness. It means we repent. It means we confess our sins to one another and say, I'm pursuing unity because I realize I've been falling short. I've been slacking off. I've been seeing through the wrong lenses. As we look at what it means to love our neighbor, you might have heard of the 59 one another's in your Bible studies or devotions where basically it's a listing of the 59 instances in the New Testament where the phrase one another is being used to, to speak to the church, the followers of Jesus, and say this is how you love one another. And so you might see we got them, a few of them listed here. I won't list them all for the sake of time. But we see love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another, Romans 12.10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12.16. Serve one another through, excuse me, through love, Galatians 5.13. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4.32. As well as forgive each other. Consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, Hebrews 10.24. Confess your sins to one another. James 5, 16. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. 1 Peter 4, verse 9. We've got to keep in mind, too, that this list isn't exhaustive. Again, this is just 9 or 10 out of the 59. But even when we look at the New Testament, we see scriptures that might not use the phrase one another, but it's still instructive to the followers of Jesus saying, this is how you love your neighbor well. Scriptures like Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So because family is messy, we see the apostles writing saying, when you fall short or when someone falls short against you or sins against you, forgive them. Love them in this way where you serve without complaining. It's prescriptive. It's instructive saying this is what you should be doing. But when you fail to do it, confess your sin, repent, forgive one another and get right back up and try it all over again. But we see a a, a sort of a discipleship failure in Acts chapter 6 where we, we can recognize that the church failed to be the church. But we can also learn and be encouraged because we fall short, but also we can learn how we should respond as the church responded here. In verse 1 it says, In those days as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Right there, even with with no context, we understand that there's a failure to love well, a failure to serve with love, a failure to, to prefer one another and consider the needs of one another, amongst other things, but we have to understand the cultural context to realize that this is, this is more than just a failure to act, but it's deeper than that. It lists two categories of people, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. 
where basically both of them were in Abraham's bloodline, the same, same cultural background of people, but the difference was in their language, where the, the Hebraic Jews would have spoken Aramaic or maybe even Hebrew as their primary language, but the Hellenistic Jews, they were speaking Greek. And that cultural difference was causing division. And notice, too, that this is in Acts chapter 6, so just four chapters beyond what we saw in Acts chapter 2, a, a people selling their, their uh, proceeds to, or selling their belongings and, and, and resources to proceed to, to others who are in need. But now we see that they're overlooking some of the people. So we see a, a, a distinguishment and a dividing line being set in place, but we also got to pay attention that it listed the widows as those who are primarily being overlooked. And if you remember uh, the book of Ruth, then you'll consider that Ruth was a, a widow. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, upon the, their, their husband's dying, her mother-in-law said, hey, listen, go back to your family because it's hard for you to take care of yourself. It's nearly impossible for you to take care of yourself. So go back and marry someone new. Find a new husband so that you can be taken care of. That was the culture here. During this time, it was hard and difficult for a widow to take care of themselves. So that's two strikes against these people who are being overlooked. One, there was the culture divide in language, but then there was the, the overlooking of the needs in particular of the widows. And so what we see here in the actions in verses 2 through 7 is careful and repenting and, and, and a loving response of the apostles as well as the followers of Jesus who are in this church. It says, the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. That don't happen often, where everyone's happy. But basically, the apostle said, choose seven men who will oversee the distribution of goods so that nobody is overlooked. And that pleased both the Hellenistic Jews as well as the Hebraic Jews. And he continues on. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. The 12 disciples must have had a conversation with these widows where they were able to learn a little more like, hey, what's going on? We got the report that something was going on, but, but what's going on? What is your needs and how can we help? There was compassion there was intentionality to prefer one another, to consider one another, and so that they can proceed with love and good works. But it started with the conversation and a bent ear that says, let me hear what's going on. Yeah. Don't miss this. The 12 disciples could have overlooked the problem in general. They could have looked and said, wait, it's just the Hellenistic Jews that are having this issue. Maybe they just need to learn the Aramaic language. Maybe, maybe they need to work a little harder or steward a little better so that they can take care of this problem themselves. Even the, the rest of the church could have overlooked and said, you know what, he told, they told us to choose seven men, so tell you what, let's choose seven Hebraic Jews as the people who will overlook so that we can continue looking out for our people and not them. But many commentators actually point out that these seven names are actually Greek names. 
They would have been of the Hellenistic Jews. So in an effort to prefer one another and make sure that the needs were actually being met, the church themselves said, tell you what, let's choose people who understand this problem to lead out to fix this problem. Let's submit ourselves to their authority so that we can learn how to love our neighbor better. So that we can be obedient to Christ, let's learn how they need us to love. Because we can look onward and say, nah, the problem is this or the problem is that. But instead, you tell us what the problem is and you show us how we can love you better. How we can respond in service in Christ-likeness. Through these actions, we see Christ-like love and characteristics of repentance as they sought to love their neighbor well and make every effort to pursue the unity in the faith. They pursued unity as the one body of Christ, as the holy Catholic church. They considered how can we best and most faithfully serve the mistreated in this situation. That was the, the heart set and the perspective and the heart posture of the Hebraic Jews as they pursued that unity. But then the the Hellenistic Jews, they were not left alone because they surely could have said, you know what, we're not being loved well. Christ is not honored by the way that you're treating our widows. So we're out of here. We'll start a new church. We'll attend somewhere else. But instead, they had to be obedient to Scripture and Christ's likeness to say, I'll forgive you as we've been forgiven. I'm going to pursue unity. I'll make every effort to pursue unity by forgiving you even though you've overlooked us, even though you've treated us wrongly and poorly. The people saw the true love of Christ that they had received and said, I want to respond in a way that shows it as well. And what was the result? The result of all of addressing what what would be considered a social justice issue. They were being overlooked and discriminated against. What they said is, hey, we'll respond in a way that that truly surrenders to Jesus, regardless of what the culture would look like, or suggest that we do. And I want you to notice this. We see that's true because of the result. That yes, God was adding to the number of those who were being saved, but it says even the priests were being obedient to the faith. The priests, most likely the Hebraic Jews that were working in the temple in the, in the bloodline of Levi, those Hebraic Jews that would have spoken the Aramaic or Hebrew language as well, they responded in a way that says, wait a second. Y'all been talking about this love of Jesus Christ, but now I actually see it. Because to my other Hebraic Jews, y'all are loving Hellenistic Jews in a way that I would not. Why? It must be because there's something to this name of Jesus that you proclaim and it must be worth living for because you're serving much greater. You're actually living out that parable that Jesus taught of the Good Samaritan showing what loving your neighbor truly looks like, even those that are outside of your culture, those outside of your native tongue. I'd imagine it would have been much easier for the Hebraic Jews to say, you know what, it's only the Hellenistic Jews who are complaining, so we're good. Don't worry about it. They just need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. We worked hard for what we got. Why we got to share it with others? The listening to the woman in the first place demonstrates compassion and realization that although things may be all good and well for the Hebraic Jews, it's not good for everyone. 
Which puts me in mind what Fannie Lou Hamer said. Nobody's free until everybody's free. We want to love our neighbor well, and our neighbors are not loved well if it's only the, the Hebraic Jews that are loved well. It's got to be the Hellenistic Jews that are loved well also. Yeah. So bear with me as I try to draw a parallel to our cultural climate, especially as, as people of the CSRA here in Augusta, a city with, with historical racism and prejudice and bigotry, as the, the Southern Baptist, Baptist Convention separated from its larger denomination, as well as the Presbyterian Church, because they wanted to continue with slavery. That's our historic background that we're coming in from. As a people within a church here at InFocus that are called to be multi-ethnic and multi-generational, I see a parallel where I, I want my, my white brothers and sisters who are, are very, very loud in that they believe that we need to make America great again. Have you ever considered at what point in our history has America been great for people of color? And that's not to sway you and say you need to, you need to vote a different way or, or subscribe to a different political party. I'm saying even in your conversations, you sometimes will say, man, we've come a long way. We've come a long way. We, we need to, to be grateful for what we got and, and, and settle here. But if there's many people of color still fighting saying, no, we still need to, be, we still need to see change, then if they're saying that it's not great now and it wasn't great before and you agree with that, then what point are you saying we need to go back to? And furthermore, again, this isn't to sway you, but how are you considering your neighbor in that stance? How are you considering your neighbor? How is this not an opportunity to look just like the apostles did and just like the rest of the Hebraic Jews and say, you know what? Maybe, maybe they're still fighting for something. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's a way that my heart should respond with compassion, not even saying I got to get into action mode, but maybe my heart needs to bend in a way that the apostles did where I need to sit down and have a conversation and say, what's going on? Truly help me understand. Because I don't want to just look with my blinders that says, man, the Hebraic Jews are, are taken care of, so the Hellenistic Jews, they just need to figure it out. Or maybe even I have my insight and my thoughts on what the Hellenistic Jews need to be doing, but maybe I need to listen to them. Maybe I need to figuratively choose seven uh, overseers so that I can listen to them state what the problem is instead of choosing for my own self what I think it is. And then to my minority brothers and sisters, I look again from a, a parallel view and understand that if the, the Hellenistic Jews were not just absolved from action, but in their effort to pursue unity in the faith, they had to forgive Forgive those who overlook them. They had to say, I'm still going to choose to love you even though I feel over, unseen and, and unheard and overlooked. Then we have to do the same for the sake of Christ's name that we bear together. It's got to be both sides together. Coming in and saying, I want to love and I want it to go beyond superficial means. I don't want to just serve alongside you, but I want you in my house. I want to break bread with you. I don't want to just, just be in a connect group where we attend once a week or just come here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, but let's do life outside of this. Let's go a step deeper. Talk to me about your family. Talk to me about your upbringing. How can I learn more? Because I'm sure it's different from what I've experienced. And let's see how we can bring glory to God even through our distinguishments and our differences because we're united in Christ. So as the worship team comes up, we, we started earlier with a few questions to, to challenge us to consider. Do I attend and go to church or do I belong to a church?
And now I want to finish us off with furthering that challenge with three statements that I, I want you to consider. And again, you might say yes, thumbs up in some areas, no thumbs down in others. But the call to faithfulness for followers of Jesus is saying, how can I be more faithful? How can I bring more glory to my God than I did yesterday? It's not saying, man, you got an hour of free time on your calendar. You better go serve somewhere. You better fill that in. That would be horrible for your health. But what it's saying is, how can my heart truly have a posture of worship and surrender where I'm all in, where I'm devoted like the early church? where I'm pursuing that unity, where I am pursuing that fellowship, that breaking bread, that praying together, that devotion to the apostles' teaching by being part of the equip classes or, or connect groups. I'm pursuing it with intentionality and prioritization. So if you close your eyes and your words right now, first I want you to pray to God and surrender your heart in worship. Whatever that sounds like to you, I want you to call out to God and say, God, I desire to belong to the church the way that you desire for me too because you've called me to belong and not just attend or go to. Surrender your hearts right now. And with your eyes closed and keeping in this moment of worship, I don't want to leave here without you considering ways for you to respond in application and practicality saying, God, I, 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 I want to surrender my heart and I want to sing this song and worship, but God, I don't want my feet to stand still. I, want to, I don't want to walk out of here the same way that I walked in this morning. So hear these words. I challenge you to make church attendance, connect group participation, and faithful service a priority in your life. Again, if that's you, you're already doing it, great, praise God. If you're aware, man, you know what? I could be more faithful. I serve once a month, but I could do a little more. I have that space. I have that margin, and I would just be watching cartoons anyway, whatever. Respond as you need to. Pursuing greater faithfulness means wholehearted worship in spirit and in truth, not just doing things to be busy. Number two, I challenge you to prioritize regular, cheerful, generous giving to the local church. If you're already doing it, great. Praise God. Respond and surrender, letting God determine what, uh, what the mark or, or measure of generosity is for you. Not just a percentage where you say, check, I've done it. But in surrender saying, God, I want to be generous as you were generous for me. So if you're not giving at all or, or if you're giving out of compulsion or fear, let your heart respond in worship, in surrender, saying, Lord, you're worthy. You're the giver of every good and perfect gift. You gave me everything that I have anyway, and therefore, God, I want to give back to you what is already rightfully yours. And number three, I challenge you to pursue deep relationships with brothers and sisters who do, but and who don't look like you. That's what heaven will look like. We saw in Revelation 7. And if my example of our current cultural climate offended you, then be honest with God about that, first and foremost in this moment. But at the end, respond in a way where you pursue a brother or sister that doesn't look like you, and you voice that in honesty. You voice that first to God, confessing your needs, saying, God, I need help with being compassionate or being considerate of even the words that I don't like or that don't fit to my background or my experience or my upbringing. It has to start with that. It has to start with us recognizing our own need. There would have been no way for the church in Acts 2 to share with others if those who were in need did not voice that they had a need. We have to voice our need to God first and then to one another. And if you're not offended, you're like, yes, I'm all in. 
I want to be united and I want to be compassionate beyond surface level. Then maybe today you invite an individual or a family who doesn't look like you. You invite them to lunch or to dinner one night this week and say, hey, I, I want to get to know you better. Over the past couple weeks, I've been going to graduation parties, and I, I had a great conversation with a, a, a fellow church member who we've known each other for years. We even went on my first mission trip together, but we had a conversation that went deeper than surface level where I learned a lot about this guy that I never would have known if we hadn't have gone and scratched beyond the surface and said, hey, let's go deeper. Look for ways that you can bring glory to God through your diversity. Look for ways that you can be more faithful regardless of where you find yourself now. Not to do more for the esteem, but to surrender yourself to Jesus and say, God, I want your light to shine even brighter in my life. So join me in prayer. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.